The title of tonight's talk is Who's the Decider? And maybe you, you know where that came from. Um, it was inspired by a statement that uh, our president, G.W. Bush, uh, made in front of the cameras, TV cameras, saying, I'm the decider. Very proud of him. Of course, the subject of this talk, the substance of this talk, is not about who's the decider among politicians, but rather who's the decider inside the different layers of our mind. However, the conundrum opened by Mr. Bush with that statement, I think, can help us preparing the ground, prepare the ground for examining later our own conundrum. By saying, I'm the decider, Mr. Bush was trying to make very clear that he and nobody else is the top dog in the system. But is there such a thing? Was he ever the top dog? Is anybody the top dog, really? Because no president makes decision on their own, from scratch, as it were, from their own clumsy brain. It doesn't work like that. And, and I'm not trying to say that Bush's decision were made by another brain, say, Dick Cheney or whoever. No. Any reasonable administration goes through a decision process which invo involves very extensive deliberations. Within the White House and in this country, and of course in this country very primarily within the corporate world as well, they have great influence, for better or for worse. It's true that in a healthier system there ought to be some input, real serious input from the grassroots. Hmm? Hopefully, maybe, this is going to happen in the future, I don't know. Let's see. There's another aspect of a precedent saying, I'm a decider, and that's the aspect of accountability. And I would say that I'd welcome such a statement from any president if what he's really meaning, which wasn't the case of the statement I was quoting, what he's really meaning is that I take responsibility for the actions of my administration. That's 
a healthy thing to do. Even, even if this singular decider is a fiction, to put some kind of a face on the deliberate process, deliberation process, if this fiction helps to assign responsibility, we need to welcome it. Somebody who at least is keeping an eye so there are no abuses that then could backfire on him or her. Okay. But as I said, this is not the main topic of my talk. It's simply to, to prepare the ground, to prepare your minds for now examining the real topic, namely how are decisions made within the various layers of our minds. The process there is at least as complicated as the one taking place within an administration, within a political system, if not much more. And this is because each one of us is not truly one unified, totally monolithic being, but is many. Each one of us is many. And within this multifarious self, there's often at least as much controversy, as, at least as many differences of opinion as there are within the administration of a country. But then, at some point, it's quite possible that within our mind, a top dog emerges. Within this multifarious cell, one part of our cell becomes the authority. This part, a me, an I, takes over the proceedings and is eager to get credit for being the decider. But is this top dog, this decider, for real? Well, it's something we make up, something that it makes up, that part of ourselves makes up. Uh, in a book by Francisco Varela, a Chilean biologist who, who died a few years ago, he says, indeed, this sense that we have, are, a self, seems so incontrovertible 
that it's calling into question or denial, even by science, strikes us as absurd. And yet, if someone were to turn the tables and ask us to look for the self, we would be hard-pressed to find it. And then Varela quotes Daniel Dennett, a philosopher. And he says, Dennett, as usual, makes this point with a flair. And now it's a quote from Dennett. You enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron. And then, before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a moral nerve impulse scratching your head and wondering where the self is. <laughs> so, said with flair, but yeah, I mean, many practitioners in, in certain traditions devote all the time when they say it to try to find the self. Nobody has ever reported finding it. Anyway, let's, let's check the evidence a little more about who makes the decisions. For us, the, the most obvious evidence is practice. Um, when I sat the three-month retreat at IMS, and some of you did too here, we are often asked, I think quite wisely, to put aside a day or two to concentrate on this issue of intention. That is, where does intention come from? Where does the decision come from? The power, the leaning towards the decision comes from, if you wish. Can you find it? So, we ask, before you, you stand up at the end of a sit, or before you open a door of your room, just, just check out whether you can catch the intention in the making. But it's, it's, it's impossible. It's almost impossible. I mean, we can ride on it, sure, we can ride on it. But um, I have been standing for long, long minutes, I, not much more, but long, long minutes in front of the door of my room and unable to open it. So, of course, what, what eventually happened is that the eye gets fed up and says, oh, okay, I open it, and does it, you know? But, but it doesn't come organically. That's the whole thing. We cannot catch it coming organically. And This is not easy to capture in words, but there's, there's a difficulty there. That's the important thing. And, and I think the exercise is primarily to let us experiment the difficulty of catching the process of decision, the process from intention to action. Okay, so 
practice is one method. Then, of course, you have the philosophers. They are very careful, very brilliant. I used to be very interested in what they did. As you may realize, I'm less interested now, from the tone of my voice, perhaps. I remember I used to teach at C.W. Post College on Long Island. I was a biology teacher. But I had many friends in the philosophy department, and it must have been more than 30 years ago that I went to this seminar by a friend of mine, Eric Walter, about free will. Now, I don't remember very much about the seminar. I managed to get a hold of Eric the other day, called him up on the phone. He couldn't remember it either. But, you know, 30 years ago. Um, but only, uh, I reconstructed just one thing. Every once in a while, in the course of his seminar, I hope my memory is correct. He didn't uh, tell me I was wrong. He couldn't remember. He would raise his finger and touch his nose in an uncontestable demonstration of free will. See? There you are. Free will in action. Well, what do scientists say about this? I want to focus on the work of one really outstanding scientist called Benjamin Libet, who, who died a, a year and a half ago, I think. He was somewhere in California. And he left, he wrote books, and he left a, a lot of work, very well respected in the world of science. And, and let me tell you what Libet would have done with uh, my friend Eric. Oh, with me this, at this moment when I tried to demonstrate. Let, let me just put it on Eric. Um, um, he would have gone to Eric and scanned his scalp for places where there was a electrode uh, potential, a, a sort of electrical potential, appearing every time that he ended up bending his finger, or touching his nose, sorry, touching his nose. And yes, he would have found, as he did find in his, the volunteers in his experiments, that every time that Eric was preparing to touch his nose, blip, what he called the readiness potential, would come up. You had to map it, find the place where that happens. But it was totally reproducible. So here's the experiment. As, as Libet did with his volunteers. Ch 
check three bits of information and compare them. The readiness potential, indicating readiness to touch the nose. The awareness of Eric that he was going to touch his nose and the touching of the nose. This is all very reliably recorded. The amazing thing is that the readiness potential every time preceded Eric's, I'm sorry, the volunteers, because <laughs> Eric wasn't <laughs> the subject here, the volunteers' decision to actually move the finger, same thing as touching the nose. Get it? The order is readiness potential, awareness, and action. The differences are very small. Readiness potential appears half a second before the action, but the awareness appears a quarter of a second before the action. We'd say, well, this is a bit shaky. It, 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 it's not, according to everybody who's looked at the data, has been repeated. And in fact, more recently, um, Professor Haynes of the Max Planck Institute in Germany has done similar experiments, but uh, more conclusive, I think. His volunteers now, it wasn't a question of bending the finger, touching the nose, of pressing a button on the left with the left hand, on the right with the right hand. So, and he used MRI, and the MRI could tell him, could predict whether it's going to be right hand, sorry, left hand or right hand. MRI predicted this up to 10 seconds. Times varied, but the longest was 10 seconds before the action. The awareness of the subject of which button they would pick appeared only two seconds before the action. It's the same as Libet's work, only more recent, and with also with a prediction of which hand. I mean, it's, it's not questionable. Boy, where is the eye there, you know? Huh. <laughs> this is really bad news for the eye. <laughs> the interesting thing is that the Buddha, not having any of this uh, devices, electronic devices, MRIs and so on, knew this 2,500 years ago. He says, and this is not exact quote, but that's the just to make it simpler, I've just simplified his language. He says, volition becomes a ba sorry, yes, volition becomes a basis for the establishment of consciousness. And this becomes a ba basis for the birth of the I. If I may put it more bluntly, the will is not an afterbirth of the I, but the I 
is an afterbirth of the will. It requires a lot of rethinking of some of our assumptions. So, in fact, what decision is, is a collaboration among different parts of ourselves. In fact, I would say, not just different parts of our individual self, because our social, communal, and even historical self gets involved here. You know, Freud was very clear, I think, and questionably right when he pointed out that our mind, our psyche, stored, stores, up, stores up influences from our past. So, our individual past, bad, but his disciple, Carl Jung, took this a step, step further, I think, very convincingly, too, and showed that our psyche stores up influences from our collective past as well. So, you know, all these influences come into play in our practice, surely. And, and with our practice is not one of pinning them down, pointing them out, just, just to receive them, open up to them. But, but let's not, I, I don't wish to be very provincial about this. They, they come up in many other things that are not usually seen as practice. Dancing, for instance, particularly spontaneous dancing. Dancing to the music, and we don't know where it comes from. It's just, uh, you don't decide, you don't think up what are you going to move, how are you going to move. You move parts of our body that you didn't, didn't know you're moving. Playing music, improvisational, playing music in particular, again, who, who, who decides? What not to play? And of course, what Raquel and others do, visual arts. She goes to the studio, she hasn't got the foggiest idea what she's going to do, right? <laughs> and, and it happens. It just happens. And of course, poetry too. In all these activities, the eye has no leg to stand on. You know? It all comes from a deeper, more profound, extraordinary place. Of course, 
just as in the case of uh, our president earlier. This doesn't obviate the need for accountability. Absolutely. It's, it's fine that somebody be accountable for the results, for whatever actions taken, not just one part of me passing the buck to another part of me. Well, you know, it wasn't me who decided that, it was that other guy that's in there, you know. So, at some point, no problem with having a sense of, I'm responsible, which is very different from saying, I run the show. Um, I remember reading some, oh, 60 years ago, War and Peace. I had a Russian girlfriend who loved War and Peace. In fact, she'd read it to me in Russian sometimes. <laughs> I didn't understand a word. <laughs> but, but somehow, it's funny, I remembered this story that she told me. And, and the other day I went to, to a, a bookstore to try to find the story, and I spent a nearly an hour there, and I never found it, but one of these is a big volume, anyway. Um, this is a, a very celebrated Russian general who, who always succeeded in the war, in the battlefield. And so somebody asked him, how do you do it? What's your secret? And he says, well, as so far as I remember, of course. But it doesn't matter. I say, Italians say, si non è vero è ben trovato. If it's not true, it's a good idea anyway. He <laughs> 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 says, well, I go to the front, to, the, to my local commanders, and I ask them, what's your situation? And what do you think should be done? And they tell me, and I tell them, do it. I order them to do it. <laughs> That's brilliant, I think. But, but yes, he would, of course, take responsibility. Yeah, sure. If he goes, he goes. He's not going to say, well, my subordinate told me to do it, you know. Um, just just a, a, a final note about the work of Libet and company, Libet particularly. Libet did also explore this particular aspect of decision-making. And he did find that at the last moment, last minimal fraction of a second, <laughs> there was a possibility of vetoing, aborting an action. He didn't, there are still doubts on that, those particular experiments, but his sense is that there is, within our, our complex brain, within that process of uh, decision, a moment where some part of the brain can say, stop it. Anyway, just to so take a little distance from this for a moment. Behind every action, there is intention, 
which as I said, it can be very complicated and so on. Not a simple thing. And as intentions lead to actions, healthy intentions or right intentions as the Buddha, the text, Buddhist text would say, lead to right action. And, and it's appropriate to recognize that and use that. For instance, in the context of this retreat, the Sinever retreat, we have some guidelines for right action. And those guidelines for right, right action really include five points, the so-called five precepts, which are as follows. Abstain from killing, which in the context means basically don't kill insects, that's all that we could be killing here, I think. Abstain from stealing, that is not taking what's not freely given to you, that's quite appropriate. Abstain from speaking except, you know, an inquiry, interviews or groups but whether silence, respect the silence. Abstain from sexual activity. It's not appropriate for the retreat. Uh, nothing wrong with sexual activity and nothing wrong with speaking, simply. It's not the place. And abstain from texting, taking intoxicants. Now, the interesting thing about those five precepts, I always remember this, it's not just that it keeps the environment in, in this room and in this building so uh, uh, appropriate, but also it keeps the, our minds appropriate too. The practice of right intention is basic, is a requisite for our own liberation. So as we discover the wisdom of modifying the repertoire of our intentions, Say, for instance, I see something very beautiful there. The, the, the sisters will not need this anyway and pocket it. Well, that is not going to hurt the sisters very much, but it hurts me. As I explore then how to purify my intentions, my mind becomes much freer. And, and it contributes to the transformation of ourselves. And in turn, this inner transformation fits back into the world. Enjoy reading this passage in, in the Mountain Record, which is a publication from a Zen monastery around here, by L David Loy. It'll take a moment, but... Um, 
I think you might enjoy it. He says, when your mind changes, the world changes. And when we respond differently to the world, the world responds differently to us. Insofar as we are actually non-dual with the world, our ways of action in it tend to involve feedback systems that incorporate other people. People not only notice what we do, they notice why we do it. I may fool people sometimes, yet over time my character becomes revealed as the intentions behind my deeds become obvious. The more I'm motivated by greed, ill will, and delusion, the more I must manipulate the world to get what I want, and consequently, the more alienated I feel, and the more alienated others feel when they see they have been manipulated. This mutual distrust encourages both sides to manipulate more. On the other side, the more my actions are motivated by generosity, loving kindness, and the wisdom of interdependence, the more I can relax and open up to the world. The more I feel part of the world and genuinely connect with other, and sorry, and genuinely connected with others, the less I will be inclined to use others, and consequently, the more inclined they will be to trust and open up to me. In such ways, transforming my own motivations not only transforms my own life, it also affects those around me, since I'm what I am, since what I am is not separate from what they are. And so, right intention feeds right action, which in turn feeds back to right intention, both in ourselves and in the world. A prerequisite for this is to step out of the sphere where the I runs the show, and from the impediments of greed, hatred, and delusion. When right intention flows freely, the process simply unfolds from our own purity of mind. The Buddha says this very explicitly in one of the scriptures called An Act of Will. For a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will, such as may freedom from remorse arise in me. It's in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. For a person free from remorse, there is no need 
for an act of will, may such as may joy arise in me. It's in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free of remorse. For a joyful person, this is kind of a sequence, eh? joy arises now as a joyful person. For a joyful person, there is no need for an act of will such as may rapture arise in me. It is in the nature of things that rapture arises in a joyful person. For a rapturous person, there is no need of, for an act of will such as may my body be serene. It's in the nature of things that a rapturous person grows serene in body. And so on. In other words, when the mind has been thoroughly purified, there is no need for a self-centered decider to step in. The process unfolds and erringly Let's sit for a few minutes in silence, please. <laughs> 